0: We move outside our comfort zone and seek new experiences to grow. We find adventure in the epic and the everyday. We travel to broaden our horizons and engage with nature. We are most at home in remote landscapes and faraway places, but never far from our community of passionate dreamers and wanderers. We are Chaconians. Join the Chacosphere at Chacos.com. Where will your Chacos go? This is The Shorts, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a duct tape and beer production. With additional support from New Belgium Brewing, Kuat Racks, and Patagonia.
1: Encouragement, peer pressure, bullying. Call it what you like, but the climbing community is full of it. Go for it! Venga, Allez! COME ON! I've been climbing long enough to have heard each and every one of these phrases, clinging desperately to poor holds, questioning my abilities, sometimes even fearing for my life. I've been the one shouting too. In fact I am worse than most. I continually push people to do more than they're comfortable with in the narcissistic belief that I know better than they do. And most of the time I get it right. I push people and they achieve. It makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. Helping people. We had one of those rare and beautiful things. A sunny day off work in the middle of the week. My friend Paul picked me up and treated me to 20 minutes of Lou Reed blasting out from the cassette player in his van. By the time we arrived at the base of the pink granite outcrop, we were psyched and ready. We had the whole place to ourselves, and just as Lou had sung to us, it was a perfect day to take a walk on the wild side. I always thought Paul was stronger than me. He'd been climbing longer too. He was a perfect example of someone I'd just decided should be climbing harder and scarier routes, and I'd made it my mission to push him until he did. I knew he could do more. Having learned to climb on the safe bolted routes of southern France, Paul had never led a pitch placing his own protection. We decided that today would be his first. Excited for his first trad lead, he looked to me for support in choosing. One stands out among the rest. Starco. The beauty of it lies in a three-dimensional puzzle halfway up. A man-sized triangular recess where no hold seems to face the right way and the only solution is to get right inside and make a long reach to the welcome relief of good holds above. It was a bit hard for a first lead, but I decided that was okay. There are good cracks for protection where it matters. Sure, he'd probably get a little scared, but he'd push through and enjoy it. It'd be a triumph among first experiences in climbing. He could do it. he'd love
0: it. I knew it.
1: He set off up the first 20 feet of easy ground. Placing protection there would be tricky and would cause a bit of rope drag so he did what most people do and ran it out until the ledge below the ominous scalene triangle. Once there, he took the time to carefully slot two small nuts in. In rock of this quality, that would be more than enough, as long as they were placed properly. Looks bomber, Paul! Go for it! I yelled up at him. I couldn't really tell if they were safe or not, except they used the same sizes as I did, and in about the same spot but I did know that he'd need all the encouragement I could give just to trust them. He took my word. He tried hard. I shouted more. He tried more. But he just couldn't figure it out. I convinced myself that he was safe. I'd seen people fall on that move. I decided that, if anything, the fool might be good for his confidence. Come on, Paul! Go for it! I yelled. He tried one more time, but he got tired and spooked. He yelled down for me to take the slack out of the rope so he could rest. Mate, just just climb down to the ledge. It's just below you. You can rest there. I wasn't scared of the fall. I just wanted him to succeed. You only ever get one chance to climb it first try, on sight. He sat back anyway, only a foot above his gear, and I held on tight. But the familiar pull on the rope was not there. The crack had not swallowed his protection as well as I'd hoped. Both nuts lifted up and out without any resistance. Everything seemed to just slow down as he kept sitting back. He rotated through the air, the sickening moment drawing out further. He struck the ledge and carried on, turning and flipping, before landing abruptly on the ground, flat on his back, 30 feet below. It was loud. One more tiny moment of silence was followed by a deathly gurgle I ran over to find him unconscious not breathing blood leaking from his left ear the first aid training I'd done only a couple of weeks before kicked in get him breathing, call for help keep him still, keep talking to him I worked through my checklist until the paramedics arrived they worked through their checklist until we could get him on the stretcher The helicopter took off half an hour later and I was left on my own to tidy up our scattered pieces of gear. It was really only then that it began to sink in. The possibility that I might have just lost one of my best friends was very real. He was not in a good way when they took off. Surely he must have broken his back. Or worse. I tried to coil up the rope, but this simple task just proved far too difficult and... I ended up bundling everything all into one big mess and throwing it in the back of his van, brambles and all. As I drove away from the crag, my mind was a mess. I could not help feeling responsible. Why did I push him to do such a hard route? Why didn't I tell him to put more gear in? Why weren't we wearing helmets? If he died, it could be on me. It took Paul only a few minutes to get to the hospital by helicopter, but it took me nearly two hours by road. He was alive. He had a cracked rib, a punctured lung and a fractured wrist, but really not too bad all things considered. He looked better, if a little confused. It was really not until a day or two later that we noticed the effects of the concussion. Paul had always been sharp and witty, a talented musician with a particularly twisted sense of humour but now he could barely hold a conversation of more than a couple of sentences. He had violent mood swings, constant confusion, and was drowsy most of the time. As I watched him, I was reminded of McMurphy returning to the ward in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. My relief at losing my friend was now replaced with a different kind of fear. At times I seriously wondered if I would ever see the pool I knew again. We all did. This lasted for two months and it got worse before it got better. The manageable and temporary sounding term, concussion, was being replaced with more worrying and permanent sounding words like brain damage. Over the weeks following the accident, I wrestled with my conscience. I worried about his recovery through most of my waking life and dreamt about it every night. His family thought of me as a hero for saving his life, but I knew that was only one half of the story. I had to try and make it right somehow, While he was still on his hospital bed, I'd given him a choice. He could give up climbing right then, I wouldn't say another word about it. But if he wanted to carry on climbing, he had to get back on the horse. And I warned him that I would push him and nag him and bully him until he climbed again. And we were going back for Starco. He chose climbing. And I had to keep my faith that this was the right thing to do. A couple of weeks passed and I had him back in the climbing gym, scared but willing. After a month he still could not focus on important tasks and was disastrously forgetful, but I was determined that all he needed was someone to take care of the technical stuff and just keep pushing him on. Less than two months after the accident, against all odds, we topped out on the biggest route either of us had ever attempted, climbing the full height of the Verdon Gorge, an ambition of Paul since early childhood. We even went back for Starco, He didn't remember anything about the place until he went for the crux move, but that brought it back in a hurry and it freaked him out so much he had to rest on his gear again. More alert than I've ever been on belay, I took the rope tight and hoped. His protection held and he went on to finish the route. I had believed in his abilities and this time I got it right. Eventually he did get back to coming up with his usual quick-witted responses to everything writing great music and of course beating me at chess. By then he'd got back into climbing full force and was trying even harder routes than before. He was always a bit of an odd character, but, as his parents so kindly put it, he's now back to being... normal for Paul. I'm not sure I ever really stopped pushing my friends to try harder. I have friends who choose to climb with me specifically because I do. Climbing is a pursuit that involves wildly varying levels of risk and the perception of the climber of how much danger they're in is often warped and exaggerated by fear. And this can hold them back. I've always enjoyed being the rational one on the ground reminding them that they're safe and encouraging them to go for it. But it only takes the slightest bit of doubt now. Or even just not quite being able to see what I need to see and I'll stay quiet. I don't have a problem with my friends making risky moves and sometimes that's exactly what they chose the route for, but it has to be their own decision, unaffected by encouragement, peer pressure or bullying. These days when people are climbing, I put a lot more care into the timing and choice of words that I use. A thousand times pushing your friends and getting it right is not worth the torment of a single bad call. I had to see something go wrong to learn that lesson. My name is Tom Iyerson, and this is my shop.
0: Thanks to Tom for sharing his story. You can hear more of Tom's stories if you visit him at the Olive Branch in El Choro, Spain, a family-run hostel where he works as a chef and a climbing coach. Paul is still climbing and writing and teaching music. You can find a link to Paul's music on our website, Dirtbagdiaries.com. It's that time of year when we start thinking about the tales of terror. If you think you can give us goosebumps, type up your story. 500 to a thousand words please then send it to editor at duct tape, then by the first week in october if we select your story we'll send you a dirtbag diaries hoodie music today by danger doom wood spider and franco the tracks were provided by mevio's music alley and free music archive you can find the links to the artist on our website dirtbagdiaries.com Support for the diaries comes from you. Whether it's your story submission, a pledge contribution, a T-shirt purchase, or a note of thanks, you keep the diaries thriving. The shorts are brought to you by Chaco, now celebrating 100,000 sandal repairs. That's pretty incredible. It's over 260,000 pounds of sandals that were not put into landfills since 2010, and that is, well, that's, it's awesome. Follow them on Twitter at Chaco USA. Support for the diaries also comes from Patagonia. We are thrilled to have partnered with them on our film that starts touring next week. Our new film, Force, uses footage shot by multiple climbers over the past five years to tell the story of photographer and climber, Mikey Schaefer's enduring relationship with climbing in Patagonia. You can see the film and special presentation in select cities over the next month in the US, and then on to Europe. The first stop is Seattle on Tuesday, September 16th. We'll put tour information up on the Dirtbag Diaries website. Additional support for the show comes from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly. And from Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. This episode of the Diaries was produced by Jen Joel, Becca Kahl, and me, Fitzka As always, thanks for tuning in.